you're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Derby. We recently featured Richard Pennell on the pod, looking to introduce listeners to greenkeeping. Building on that initial introduction, we're going to explore the intersection between course design, agronomy, and curation of golf courses today. In an effort to do the topic justice, I am very pleased to welcome George Waters to today's episode. George works for the USGA as manager of Green Section Education. In a past life, he worked in golf course maintenance, initially at St George's on Long Island, New York, and subsequently at Royal Dornock in Scotland, Marion Golf Club in Pennsylvania, and the California Golf Club in San Francisco. George also has significant experience in the dirt through plenty of course design work on behalf of luminaries such as Renaissance Golf Design, Corin Crenshaw, Kyle Phillips, Jeff Mingay, and Jim Urbina. This has seen him work on notable projects such as Barn Bugle Dunes, Sabonic, and the renovations of Mid Pines, Passantiempo, Pinehurst No. 2, and the Cal Club. George has also published a book entitled Sand and Golf, which is referenced directly and indirectly over the course of the episode. Many thanks for tuning in. We do hope you enjoy the chat. Hi, George. You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. How's all in New Jersey? Everything's great, Shane. Thanks so much for having me. You're more than welcome. I, you know, I had Bradley Klein on a few weeks back and got my Fahrenheit's mixed up in my Celsius. As I know probably not the, the first European to do that. But I do believe it's warming up a little over there. And there's early activity out in the golf courses as greenkeeping staff breathe new life into surfaces that have lain fallow over the winter period. Have you managed to make any tentative steps back on the golf course yourself in the early days of spring? I have. Uh, I played once a couple of weeks ago on sort of a random warm day and I made it out to the range last week with my brother on another warm day. And it, it looks like we've got a stretch of, of better weather on the horizon here. Spring's been a little slow uh, to arrive here this year, but, you know, we can more or less play kind of throughout the year here, depending on how hardy you are. We don't get a ton of snow cover here in New Jersey. So it'll snow and snow melt, snow melt. So you can play throughout the year, but yeah, spring's been slow to arrive and I'm getting a little older. So I usually wait to see about a, I want to see about 50 degrees on the high there before I'm, I'm willing to venture out onto the course. So we're there now. I think we're golf season's about to get going. Fair weather golfer then. So in your later life. I think so. Yeah. I used to play in the winter. I mean, I have, you know, my friends and I used to think it was a riot to go out and play tall grass out on Long Island. It's a, early Gil Hance course that's since been uh, turned over into solar panels, unfortunately. But it actually, honestly, almost used to play better in the winter because the ground would sort of partially freeze and it would just bounce like crazy. They could never get it that firm during the summertime. But in the wintertime, it really rolled and bounced. So it used to be fun to go out there in like January and play when it was 45 degrees. But I think those days are a little bit behind me. I want to see a 50, 50 something and I'll, and I'll play. Yeah, mate, that brings a whole new idea to firm and fast golf. <laughs> it does. Listen, I'm sure many of our listeners know who you are. For those that don't, you might give us an introduction to George Waters, golfer, greenkeeper, sometimes contractor, obviously design builder and educator. Sure. Quick 
background, I guess, most of my career was in golf course design and construction. I uh, worked for a number of different architects, including Tom Doak, Corin Crenshaw, Kyle Phillips, Jeff Minge, Jim Urbina. Uh, my undergrads in economics and my graduate school work was in landscape architecture and had a lot of background in golf course maintenance sort of leading up to my design career because it was a really good way to get around and, and visit places and study courses. I mean, that was really the the main draw for, for course maintenance to me was number one, seeing how golf courses worked sort of day to day, what it took to take care of the features, get to really study a course from sort of the ground up and really get to spend a lot, a lot of time with it, watch people playing it, play it a lot yourself. And it's a great way to get around and just get into different, you know, these sort of great neighborhoods of the golf world and spend time and see all the different courses. So, you know, you go and work on a place on Long Island and you're going to get to know the courses in the neighborhood and the same with Philadelphia or San Francisco or, you know, wherever it might be. So it was a really good, good way for me to get around and, and sort of see a lot of different places, study courses, understand the relationship between maintenance and architecture. Uh, and so had a lot of background there. And then all of that sort of kind of came together a few years ago. I was working on a restoration project here in New Jersey and got to know some folks over at the USGA in the process and learned a little bit more about some of the things that they were doing at the USGA. Honestly, I wasn't all that familiar with the full scope of what the USGA did and all the different departments at the time and got to know some people uh, and an opportunity presented itself in the green section there which focuses a lot on golf course maintenance, golf course sustainability. And I had a lot of background in that area over the years. And so uh, it ended up being a good fit. And uh, for the past five or six years at this point, I've been working in the green section as the manager of education. Great. Well, we will get on to your role with uh, the green section of the USGA a little bit later on. However, as a, a New York native, and a Long Island native, you spent your formative years surrounded by great golf on Long Island. First, just as a jumping off question in relation to the, the interview, I'd just like to know what, to your mind, characterizes the golf on Long Island and why is it much of it considered perfect for golf? I mean, Long Island is sort of a, has a lot of things going in its favor from a golf perspective. A really good diversity of terrain, for one thing, in a relatively close proximity. There's sort of some, you know, geological features there. It's sort of Long Island is basically kind of the end of where the glaciers stopped uh, and kind of pushed up a big pile of rocks and dirt and sand and everything, and then kind of left them there. And, and as the glacier receded, washed out and left a bunch of sand and finer material in behind it. So what you get with that is, is a really interesting mix of terrain where you've got some very hilly, dramatic kind of properties like Bethpage, uh, Shinnecock Hills uh, that are really undulating land. And hardly any distance away from either of those courses, you'll get a much flatter, kind of a more wrinkled Garden City, Maidstone, completely different landforms, all within half an hour drive of one another, and sometimes even, even a shorter drive from one another. So you get a lot of variety in a relatively small area, which is big plus. 
for the most part, you're talking about free draining soils on Long Island. It's not all sandy. For the most part, it's sandy or gravelly or stony enough that, that drainage isn't typically a huge issue. And so you get the opportunity for some firm conditions uh, at a lot of the courses and, and decent golf throughout the year, which, you know, you'll know from Ireland makes a difference as you get into those sort of gloomier parts of the year where it's wetter and colder golf on Long Island stays pretty good at a lot of places longer into the year because the soils tend to drain a little bit better. Wind I think is another pretty good attribute of Long Island golf. That's obviously most pronounced on the East end and sort of the famous courses of the Hamptons and, you know, North and South fork, but most of Long Island gets a reasonable amount of breeze throughout the year. And so you're going to see wind, as part of the game there, which is an advantage. And honestly, kind of like an, an interesting one is the proximity to New York City in terms of the investment that people were prepared to make into golf, especially in the earlier days, and just being around a bunch of great architects. I mean, that's something that I've sort of learned has be, is kind of more important than I maybe perhaps understood it to be earlier on, is that there are some of these metro areas uh, these sort of great clusters of golf that really benefited from having a number of great architects that just happened to kind of work in the area, whether that's Philadelphia, whether that's the New York metro area, whether that's London, whether that's Melbourne. Uh, they benefited from having, you know, inspired architects that were working in the area and doing a lot, working with each other. And it made a big difference in the quality of, of golf course architecture in the area. So I think Long Island benefited a lot from that, from the, from the architects that were present and the fact that they had, you know, sort of patrons that were willing to support their efforts and let them really do the best that they could. Absolutely. Commentators often remarked to an old boss of yours, Tom Doak, back in the 1980s, that all the best sites for golf had been taken. It's interesting to note that since then, high-profile courses such as Sabonic and Friars Head have been opened on Long Island alone. Were you aware of the sites that these courses would have been utilized as a young fella on, uh, on Long Island? Uh, definitely not. And, and I was certainly under the impression that golf on Long Island in terms of new courses was sort of a done deal growing up. But, I mean, I worked on Sabonic and saw Friars Head as it was being built and, and, you know, visited over there pretty regularly in its very early days before they had a clubhouse or anything uh, as we were building Sabonic. So, you know, that certainly changed my perspective on that. And it seems like that, that narrative of, you know, all the great sites are gone continues to be proven wrong, right? I mean, it almost doesn't matter where you're talking about. They seem to find new and interesting sites. And, you know, certainly some of those are these remote areas, but not always. Uh, and, and they're finding sites for new courses, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily expect. You're seeing total renovations of courses that are on good land, uh, but, you know, maybe didn't utilize it optimally. And so that's, that's essentially like building a new course on an existing site. But yeah, I'm, I'm continually surprised by the great pieces of land that seem to keep popping up. I mean, certainly the Southern Hemisphere, it seems like New Zealand, Terra Edi neighborhood is sort of one unbelievable site after the next there. Photos from Cabot St. Lucia look unbelievable. 
And it's not like St. Lucia is like off the radar. So, I mean, I think that, that it seems like developers continue to be able to surprise people in terms of gaining access to, to quality pieces of land. Yeah, I'm keen to look at the interplay between turf science, maintenance and design build throughout this episode. However, we obviously need to set the scene a little bit, as it were. And to do this, I'd like to bring you back to your very first greenkeeping posting at the Devereux Emmett-inspired St. George's Golf and Country Club in Long Island. I'm sure some of our US listeners will have heard of Devereux Emmett as the designer of record at Garden City. What can you tell about us about the pre-Gilhans iteration of St. George's and how your formative experiences tending the course set you on your chosen path into course design and beyond? My time at St. George's was sort of, I mean, just good fortune, I think, is, is what really got the ball rolling there. It, it just so happened to be the course that was basically closest to where the house that I grew up in. And it was sort of the, the course that our junior high school and high school played golf at. So it was, it was just a logical candidate for me to go looking for a job. And I actually got kind of connected with the superintendent there by way of a, a friend of my dad's, my dad's friend's next door neighbor was a guy named Bob Rainham, who's a very highly regarded uh, superintendent out on the east end of Long Island. Uh, he's now a, a course raider and sort of living a retired life that's the the life of the envy of everyone. But I went out and met Bob at the Atlantic and was sort of asking about getting into golf and, you know, how would I approach getting into course maintenance and so on. And he said, well, you know, coming out here to work on the East End right away is going to be too much for you right out of the gates. But, you know, you live in Stony Brook. St. George's is right by your house. I know the superintendent there. Tell him that that I sent you over and, and recommended you to, to work there. And I did that. And uh, fortunately, it worked out that they hired me on. And at the time, I didn't think of St. George's as being anything, you know, particularly special. But I hadn't seen a lot of different golf courses at that point. I mean, we were sort of playing two public courses that were, you know, sort of what you'd call here, sort of like executive courses, but sort of short courses, mostly par threes, a couple par fours. Neither one is in existence anymore. So I hadn't seen a lot of golf courses. I didn't know much, which I think actually kind of was a benefit to me that I took some of the very unusual features at St. George's kind of for granted. I mean, I just figured like, oh, well, you know, golf courses all look like this and they all have a moat of trench bunkers around the, the fourth green with these sort of chocolate drop mounds and they've all got fall away greens and these sort of really severe fairway bunkers and all this different kind of stuff that's actually not all that typical in American golf course architecture but it was my kind of introduction to typical golf courses and so I think that really shaped my perspective a lot now St. George's at the time, when I first started working there, it was, as you said, before Gil Hans had done the restoration work, the greens haven't changed. And that's really probably one of the most noteworthy features of the course. So the greens are really, really cool set of greens. What was very, very different, and the bunker locations changed some, but not tons. It was mostly sort of, I mean, Gil's work was sort of amplifying the character, recapturing the character of the bunkers. A big part of it was tree removal, getting the grassing lines back out. I mean, when I first started working there, it was a much narrower course, far more trees, 
and sort of a little bit more towards like a claustrophobic kind of feel now. And part of this was Gill's restoration work, but part of it has been the sort of dogged determination of the superintendent, Adam Jesse, who I actually met when I was working at Sabonic, he was working over at Shinnecock and went on to become the, the superintendent at St. George's. He's been very determined about working with Gill, continuing to remove trees, continuing to connect fairways and expand fairways because it's a compact property. And so that little bit of extra width, those connections between holes, those views across the property, it's a beautiful piece of ground. All of that has made a huge difference in, you know, what in a lot of ways is sort of a fundamentally unchanged course, but the perception of the course is completely different now. I mean, you have the course had the same set of greens, the same routing as when I worked there, but it was nowhere near any kind of a top hundred list or, you know, certainly wasn't getting highlighted as much as it is on social media as it is these days. But the esteem for the course really took off with that tree clearing, with the grassing lines. Uh, and I think taking that with Gil tuning up the bunker work there, it really brought to life what was already kind of there. I mean, the bones were there sort of, and it all just sort of came to life. So I learned a lot seeing that process, you know, even long after I stopped working there, I go back all the time because my parents still live 10 minutes away. So I'm, I'm over by the course pretty regularly. I get out and play a couple times a year. So I've gotten to see this evolution over time. And I've learned a lot from watching that and seeing, you know, sort of, what changes people's perception of a course and the impact that some of those, you know, very basic trees, grass lines, what an impact that can have on, on how a course is perceived and enjoyed. It sounds like you may not have had too much of an appreciation of who Devereaux Emmett was at the time that you started there. But I'm just wondering if you could share with us how you feel he fits into the tapestry of golden age architecture knowing what you know now yeah absolutely no question at the time i mean i was clueless about who Devereux emmett was i learned more over time and had a chance to work on a few other sites that he worked with emmett was involved in the early stages of garden city uh, with some travis work subsequently overlaid on top of it who exactly gets credit for what i'm, I'm not a historian and i'm not a historical expert enough to, to know where to draw that line but i know travis gets a lot of credit and deserves it for the modern version of garden city but emmett kind of laid the groundwork uh just down the road from garden city golf club is garden city country club which is emmett just a bit further down the road and i'm literally talking like down a specific road like they're all just sort of right there rockville links is an emmett course that i worked with jim urbina on the restoration of little while back very interesting course really interesting bunker arrangements it's almost i think it's probably the flattest site that i've ever seen i mean people say that garden city is flat i don't i don't really agree with that like garden city does have a little kind of undulation and roll to it it's, it's not a flat site rockville links is flat 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 and Emmett's response to that, I mean, the old aerial that we were working off of has some of the coolest and most compelling bunker arrangements that you'll ever see. And they've done a great job carrying on and, and sort of wrapping up that restoration work. And again, uh, with a really motivated superintendent who's done a great job taking it, you know, beyond the architecture to 
working on the trees, working on the grass lines, working on the playing conditions to take that further. And Emmett goes, you know, way beyond Long Island. I mean, sort of throughout that Northeastern corridor, I mean, he did the original congressional, which changed, you know, so much since the time that he did it, that they eventually just decided to, you know, the current iteration of it is, is I think, largely disconnected from what Emmett did. And that seems like that's been a little bit of a case with a lot of Emmett's work is that he did a lot of work throughout the Northeast, good work, you know, whether his name didn't carry enough weight or whether it was just sort of the way things went, there was a lot overlaid on top of the courses that he did by other architects, subsequent work that, you know, maybe wasn't as good as what Emmett had done. And so I think that had a detrimental effect on his profile, right? Because the the work that people saw that was his, you know, his original work wasn't there for them to see. And so they could see fragments of it. They could see, you know, versions of it, but they didn't often get a chance to see the really preserved original designs of his and the old photos of them all. And when you, when you see them on the ground and see them at courses that have been restored, he really was a great architect and, I think you're seeing more interest in his work now and you're seeing more restorations being done of his work. I think St. George's has played a role in that and in sort of opening people's eyes to what Emmett was as a designer and, and what his courses could be like if you do a little digging. And, and I think that that's paying off a lot. So uh, I think you're going to hear more about Devereux Emmett in the years to come. And I think that the esteem of his work is going to continue to rise. You know, it's funny, I mean, there's always an Irish connection if you dig deep enough. The Liggs convener in Port Marnock, Dara Garrahy, told me a couple of weeks ago that Devereux Emmett's granduncle was in fact Robert Emmett, the very famous Irish Republican leader who led uh, uh, an unsuccessful rebellion against the British crown in 1803 in Ireland. So you learn something new every day. There you go. There you go, indeed. Listen, I just would like to bring you forward somewhat with regard to the precursor, if you like, to your Renaissance design internship. The trajectory of your golf-related wanderings appears to mirror much of what Tom Doak undertook during his bursary year away from Cornell. No surprise that you dutifully followed his sage advice and traipsed off to Royal Dornoch for a summer internship in Scotland. The posting itself would present you, obviously, with an opportunity to get stuck into some greenkeeping, in addition to allowing you to play, play uh, playing access to the course and an opportunity to earn some pocket money as a looper for visiting golfers. I'm interested to know how your windswept and interesting ex- experiences in the Scottish Highlands went on to influence your understanding of golf and perhaps give you a glimpse of the soul of the game. Yeah, I mean, I think if I look at the sort of some of the big picture lessons that I took uh, from that experience, aside from it being just a great way to spend a summer as a young man and to really immerse yourself in golf. I mean, just it was a great golf summer, regardless of anything else. I mean, I can't think of very many places that you would rather spend a summer playing golf. And so that on itself was was a gift. But one of the things that I really took away from it was learning about the concept of fairness. I mean, Certainly in in the United States, it seems like, but I I think, you know, modern golf in general is struggles with this issue a little bit is that the concept that the golf is supposed to be fair. And when you go there, you learn pretty quickly at Dornoch that very little of of what happens out there is, is 
guided by fairness necessarily. I mean, there's inequity to it on sort of the bigger picture and, you know, your chances are better of getting a better lie or getting a better outcome. The more that you're sort of playing along the direct line and executing the shots as you think you should within that, there's a lot of variability between good bounces and bad bounces. And there's not really any telling exactly what's going to happen with any tee shot that hits those fairways. I mean, it's, it's firm, it's fast. You've got wrinkles everywhere and, and balls can take strange bounces. And you think you've hit exactly the tee shot that you wanted to. And it ends up kicking sideways into a bunker. And you went from, you know, a very good chance of making par to you're going to struggle to make bogey. That is, you know, links golf in a nutshell. And I think that that's, you know, that's golf in a nutshell. Learning that lesson and, and kind of having your eyes open to the fact that, you know, not only is golf not really fair, but trying to make it fair or worrying too much about the fairness is, to me, felt almost kind of detrimental to the game. I mean, it's, I found it to be a much more interesting game when it had that, that element of chance to it was amplified. And when you really had to adapt constantly day to day, shot to shot, hole to hole, and that it just, it wasn't going to play the same every day. And there was no way to, to make it play the same every day. And it wasn't really something that we were trying to accomplish. And so embracing that and learning to live with it and you know learning to live with going out and the winds against you and you figure oh it's going to be at my back on the way and well I just turned right around when I got out to eight and now I'm <laughs> played 18 holes into the wind the whole day and you know and it's brutal that's just part of the game there and I think that that really influenced my outlook on golf in general and golf course architecture going forward was that you know, worrying about fairness wasn't something that I felt was something that I wanted to spend a ton of time with. And it served me well to learn that lesson because it's it's something that Tom and Bill and Ben and, and the people that I went on to work with also felt pretty strongly about. Like, obviously, there's a limit to that where, you know, things need to be reasonable. Of course, it's need to be playable. But once you're kind of above that threshold, there's a lot of leeway when you play Lynx golf in terms of what's considered acceptable. And that isn't necessarily the perspective that you find when you play golf throughout the United States. And so I think I really benefited from, from having my eyes opened on that. Sort of the concept of, of, sort of seasonality, kind of the ebb and flow of conditions is another one where there were times there where, you know, it hadn't rained for a while and the Lynx got really dry they would look different. It would play different. Sometimes it would get, you know, go through a wetter spell. It would be greener and softer. That wasn't something that we worried about. And it wasn't something that the golfers were fretting about. It was just, you know, that was just life. And that's something that I think is tougher for people. You know, it's, a, it's sort of a bigger issue uh, in the United States anyway, or, or, you know, depending on the type of courses where people are, are very concerned about consistency uh, there, it's such a, an inherently inconsistent environment that I, I don't think it's, it's really that much of a concern and being willing to sort of take the course as it came, the weather is what it is. The course is firm today. It's, it's soft tomorrow. That's just kind of golf and seeing people sort of embrace that ebb and flow and, and have that not be like a problem, but just be sort of part of the game is another lesson that I sort of took with me from that experience. 
And then golf as a community space is, is sort of another big, I mean, and that was like a radical difference from what I was accustomed to. And so I can remember sort of very early on, like first day I got there, wanting to go out and see the course. And I was staying with the course manager at the time, uh, the club manager. And he, I was like, oh, you know, what do I need to do to go out and take a walk around the course? And he said, go out and take a walk around the course. He's like, I was like, oh, okay, I don't, you know, I don't need to ask anybody. He's like, it's, it's common land. Go, you know, go help yourself. Go walk around. And then to go out and walk around and see, you know, people walking their dogs, people out walking around with golfers playing amongst them. And then to have those experiences yourself where you're playing, there's people walking by, there's people walking dogs, there's people crossing on the way to the beach. For someone used to, you know, American golf courses, the American golf experience, that was a real eye-opener that, you know, hey, golf courses can be, you know, more than just a place just for golf. And it took a little getting used to. I mean, the first times that you're you're playing down and there's just people walking around all over the place, it's like a little jarring and you're like worried about hitting them and, and these different things. But But once you get used to it and you realize... You know, they see me, I see them, can yell for the same as if they were golfers. And, and it's, you know, and they're getting a chance to enjoy this great space the same way that I am. That changed my perspective a lot about, about what golf could be. Uh, and I think arguably what it should be more often. I guess it's recapturing that spirit of St. Andrews sort of vibe. I, I certainly, I certainly remember, I think it was Ron Morissette on a podcast speak about our American friends coming across the pond and playing golf in Scotland and or Ireland and sort of so the light bulb goes on in terms of Lynx golf and all the things you spoke about there. Problem being they get on the plane and they have a lobotomy halfway across the uh, the, the, the Atlantic and they forget everything that they, they've learnt over the week or two they've spent there. I guess to a certain degree the PGA Tour and the monoculture and I guess ultimately I guess being influenced maybe a little bit too much from the professional game sort of feeds into that people and the quest for fairness and consistency. I always wonder about the influence of sort of TV golf and it's certainly something that gets pointed to a lot as you know sort of planting bad ideas in people's heads and, or, you know, or unreasonable ideas in people's heads. And, and that might be true to an extent, but I feel like there's just sort of more general things that, that contribute to it. I mean, the, the sort of prevalence of stroke play, I think in the United States is a contributing factor. I mean, in stroke play, the little injustices that are inevitable with golf it really feels sort of magnified from an, from an emotional standpoint because you, you really feel like, you know, your score just got, you know, quote unquote ruined by this bad bounce or, what, or whatever it is. Whereas match play, which, as you know, is obviously the, the preferred way of playing in Scotland and Ireland, and especially on those links courses for good reason, you know, your score on a given day could be who knows what depending on how the wind's blowing how you're playing what the conditions are like and so being focused more on that match and far less concerned about your score i think goes a long way towards 
being less concerned about fairness. Um, and I've often felt that it's, it's a real shame that match play isn't more common here in the United States, because I feel like just the format alone goes a long way towards addressing a lot of the issues that people point to in golf when they say, Oh, you know, golf takes too long. Well, I mean, match play shortens up around a golf real quick because you put two balls out into the woods and all right, let's just go to the next hole rather than out there trying to figure out a drop and looking in the bushes, trying to find them. It just saves so much time conceded putts. I mean, just the number of shots that are actually played is way less. And so you get around the course a lot faster. You know, people point to out golf is, you know, frustrating, like an aggravating game. And yeah, it, it is that, but I find that match play makes it quite a bit less aggravating because you, you sort of, okay, like I'm out of this hole. I don't need to go through the misery of finishing this out to the last absolute stroke. Like we can just call it good. Like, all right, you're on the green. That's it. Those benefits to match play, I think are really significant. I mean, pace of play and, and sort of a more enjoyable type of playing. So I think it's a shame that, that it isn't more common over here. And I think that golf in the United States would benefit a lot if match play were played more often. And I think that fairness factor washes away a little bit more the more that you're kind of playing match play or just sort of playing for fun rather than worrying about your score. No, for sure. Uh, just interested to know, George, when you were in Scotland and in Dornoch, did you get much time to travel around the, the Highlands and, and visit nice places like Tain and Brora and Galsby and places like that? I went all around. The, the guys at, on the green staff at Dornoch were very nice about uh, making sure that they took me around to see a bunch of the courses in the area. So I visited all those ones you mentioned uh, and some more. And then the club was really accommodating uh, after my time was up with kind of setting up some travel uh, through Eastern Scotland in particular on my way back to America. So went to the old course, went to North Berwick, went to Carnoustie, all those places. Carnoustie had, had the open that year. So I got around and, and got a chance to sort of see all of it, which was great. And got to see some of the, you know, like the ones you mentioned, Tain, or a little bit of the off the beaten track ones. Although I'll say that the what's off the beaten track these days, uh, it seems like people do a really good job, a better job when they're visiting over there now to, to get around and see a few more of the other courses in the areas instead of kind of only going to the biggest name places. I mean, certainly those still end up being the sort of the anchors of people's trips, but I do feel like the average golf tourist is, is getting around to see some more places more regularly, which I think is great. I certainly recall Tom Doak remembering his travels around Scotland. And I think he was taking some pictures and which ultimately appeared in golf world magazine or golf monthly, maybe. And the guys in London had never seen, had never stepped foot in Cruden Bay. And he was able to share some pictures with them. But I suppose the days of, of Instagram have a lot to, we have a lot to be thankful for that in terms of creating a following for places that perhaps are a little, little bit more off the beaten track than perhaps uh, the Trophy Links courses. Absolutely. No question about it. And I think that there's a little bit to thank in the, in the technology realm as well, because the, the photos that people are able to take 
just with their phones. Uh, I mean, never mind if they've brought a professional camera or a drone out with them. Uh, it's even better. But just what you can do with your phone these days is is amazing. And I think it really brings a lot of those places to life. And it, and it gives people a chance to take photos of them that, you know, are hard to do when you're, if you're trying to play, it can be really hard to take good photos if you're out there with like a full camera kit, but it's, it's not that hard to be out there in an evening and pull your phone out and catch a really beautiful moment out at Royal Dornock and, or Brora or Tain or, or, you know, wherever it is. And those images, you know, definitely capture people's imagination when they see them online. So I think that's been great for these, for sort of the off the beaten track courses to get a little bit more exposure and, and to benefit from the tourism and the interest in some of the bigger courses that people can remember. Oh, Hey, I saw, you know, some incredible pictures of this place. Why don't we go check it out while we're in the neighborhood? No, no, for sure. Look, I wasn't really sure where to put this next little piece, but I've resolved to leap forward in time a little bit and take a quick look at your time on the Grange team at Marion Golf Club in Pennsylvania. Initially, for the purposes of just a bearing point, you might just let us know how far I've time traveled beyond the summer at Dornock. I want to say that I was at Dornock in the summer of 1999, uh, so a long time ago now. That would my my maths that would actually stack up because obviously Carnoustie hosted the Open in 1999 when Paul Laurie won. That's right. There you go. So 1999, and uh, Marion was a few. Years, so I was going into my final year of undergraduate, uh, and Marion I worked at the second summer that I was in graduate school. I had actually already done my my first internship with Doak, and I was scheduled to go and work at Ballyneal that summer in the construction, but the construction was delayed. And so Tom didn't really have any projects actively going that summer. And so I was left to sort of figure something out for that summer, what I wanted to do. And I had a friend living in Philadelphia, a good friend from college, and I had never seen a lot of the courses there. And so I just emailed every course in Philadelphia that was, you know, sort of highly regarded in Tom's confidential guide, which is basically the approach that I took to getting to Dornick. I just emailed every course in Scotland that I could. Tom wrote highly about in the confidential guide. Got lucky that, that Dornick was the one that got back to me. And basically the same thing with Philadelphia. Nobody replied when I asked, except for Marion. Uh, and, and Matt Schaefer said, you know, sure, if you want to come work here, you, you know, when can you start kind of thing? And so that was, that was how I ended up there. So it's probably like 2004 or something. It was the year before they had the U.S. Amateur because they were interested. They knew I had some construction experience and, of course, maintenance experience. And they were making a bunch of improvements and course changes in preparation for the AM. So whatever year they had the AM, it was the year before that. Just really interested to know, how did working on a world-class course like Marion give you a greater understanding of the interplay between curation of a golf course and specific design elements? Coming from St. George's, which I would say is sort of like pretty middle-of-the-road country club golf standards, to Dornick, which is obviously a very high standard of, of links course maintenance, but you know, again, links course maintenance is a very different animal than what we're used to in the U.S. And, and honestly, the environment there is, in a lot of ways, so suitable for golf, which is, you know, no surprise. Golf has originated there and 
those grasses have been growing on those fairways for hundreds of years. And so they're relatively happy where they are. It was a pretty hands-off approach at Dorna for the most part. I mean, I don't know that we ran the sprinkler system the entire summer I was there. That might've been, you know, a, a lucky way that the rainfall happened to work out, but we didn't do much in the way of chemical applications or fertilizer. I mean, it just, it was just sort of daily maintenance. And if we didn't need to mow fairways because it had been dry and they weren't growing, we didn't really mow them and break the bunkers and fill some divots. And it was pretty, you know, we sort of, the course took care of itself in a lot of respects and that's an oversimplification, but it's certainly, you know, contrasting that with Marion where you've got all of a sudden going to, you know, where the goal is truly, like championship conditions. I mean, at that time, the the mantra that I was hearing a lot was that they wanted to be able to host a U.S. Open on any given day, basically. I don't know if that was just for the sake of saying it or, you know, to, to set a standard, but that was something that I heard repeated a lot. And the work that we did, I think, was was reflective of that. But it gave me a chance to see, like, what does that really mean? I mean, what is people... In the United States, I think, talk about championship conditions, but to really like see it executed on that kind of a routine basis and to see the resources involved in doing it and the amount of effort that went into doing it was a real eye opener. Also, to see that in an environment that's almost like hostile to growing grass. I mean, Long Island, Scotland, those are places that are reasonably accommodating to growing grass. Philadelphia is not a great climate for growing cool season grasses in a lot of ways. I mean, it's so hot in the summer and steamy and and Marion's down in these sort of Creek valleys. And so it just cooks in there. And, you know, that grass was not growing by itself. And so it took a lot of work, a lot of people, a lot of money, a lot of hours. It was a real grind. And so that was, that was a good experience to see that firsthand, to be a part of it and to really learn about, what all went into that an obvious you know benefit of course is was getting the chance to spend a lot of time on the course getting a chance to play the course on a pretty regular basis and you know really getting to spend time learning about what makes marion so special and i think that sort of throughout my career i benefited a lot from seeing a lot of places getting around to see a lot of places but but also spending chunks of time with courses that are really special so that you really got to develop a good understanding of, of what made them so special. Because I do think you there are things that you don't pick up in a one-time visit, in a two-time visit, a place that you visit once a year, whatever it is. Getting to be there for sort of months on end, seeing it day in, day out, you learn a lot more, which, which I really benefited from. And I guess with that extended time to view and to learn courses like that, the subtleties that are obviously inherent in the design and the the questions that the designer builds into the golf course it just gives you time to to appreciate those a bit better obviously see them in different climatic or weather weather patterns and obviously with different winds that you wouldn't necessarily get if you were just there for a day or two yeah and you get to see different players playing them which is good i mean in addition to you playing yourself and you know we all play differently different rounds and so you know you get to experience it that way but working on a golf course in course maintenance I mean you're out there during the day with golfers playing around you and so 
you get a chance to see where people are hitting the ball, how different kinds of golfers are playing different holes. What happens when somebody, you know, okay, this guy ended up exactly where I was yesterday in the, the sixth fairway at Marion. How does his shot work out with his ball flight, with the way that he plays in Dornick getting to caddy and getting to see a lot of different people play the course in a lot of different ways. You learn so much from just observing that if you sort of keep your eyes open while it's happening around you. And so that's another big plus of spending a lot of time with the course. Another course that, uh, that you spent some significant amount of time on was uh, the California Club in San Francisco. Obviously, Kyle Phillips was tasked with restoring the Alice McKenzie masterpiece. The end result is considered by some as some of the finest restoration work that has yet graced a course in the United States. I know you worked on the construction project initially, in addition to subsequently spending time on the Greens team. In preparing for our chat, I came across a passage on Golf Club Atlas, penned by Rand Morissette, with regard to one of your shaped elements at the Cal Club. I'd just like to read the passage out of you. Late on an October evening, a group of us were going over the finer details and the conversation turned to the feeder mound in front of the long par 3 eighth green. It turned out that George had shaped that one and he talked about some of the holes in Britain where a ridge begins out in the approach area and then carries through the putting surface, holding up a narrow high shelf and acting as a feeder for the broader lower shelf. He noted the 17th at St George's Hill as well as old Tom's sixth green in the valley course at Rossapena. It did make me think that the ease of travel and the better world economy and politics at the start of the 21st century allowed someone's interest like George's to foster and grow as opposed to people who pursued the profession from the 1950s through the 1980s and that they weren't afforded such opportunities of studying UK courses. Given Rand's comments, how formative was the opportunity to travel widely and transpose the essence of those experiences into features such as the ridge you created on the par 38 at the Cal Club. Uh, well, first of all, uh, in hearing that that comment from from Rand there, I'm impressed that I had the, had the 17th at St. George's Hill and the, the 6th at the Valley Course at Rosapena right on the tip of my tongue to, to make the reference there. So I was definitely pretty dialed into what I had seen at my travels. Uh, Kudos to you, sir. I guess. I mean, I, I don't know that I'd have those two right ready to go today. But so obviously my travels had made an impression on me. And, and I think that traveling sort of gives you that toolbox of, you know, seeing different ways to address different situations. And I think that that's the real benefit that comes with it is you've now seen, you know, a lot of golf course construction, golf course architecture is, is trying to fit things into the circumstances that you're dealing with and seeing how others have made things fit in an interesting and in a cool way, how they've solved a sort of different various problems that the landscape will present you, you end up sort of banking that information and it, and it comes back, you know, as you're out there working in the field or looking at a map or whatever it is, and it, it comes to mind and it gives you a clue on how to address that situation in the specific case that you're working on. And so I think that's what traveling really did really does for you. I mean, like I said, spending a lot of time with courses, I think really teaches you about the nuances of, of architecture and maintenance. Traveling and seeing a lot of places kind of builds your palate for like what is possible. And that I think is a, you know, this story that, that Rand related there is a good example of that. I mean, I, I had been to St. George's Hill once, I think. And, and it just, I remember that green 
still to this day and I have a picture of that specific feature. And it came to mind when Kyle was discussing what his goals were for the eighth green at, at Cal club. And so it just made it a lot easier to sort of solve that particular puzzle was knowing, Oh, you know, I've seen something like this before. I, I kind of have an idea starting point and then you adapt it to, to the circumstances that you're confronted with. And would you have a mental picture of that, George, or would it be, because I know certainly your, your former boss, Tom Doak is a bit of a photographic memory for these sort of things, but would you have a similar sort of memory or do you have to go back and look at the picture to, to reacquaint yourself with the exact details? It depends. I mean, there are definitely some things that I remember really well and would sort of have in mind, but, for the most part, it's more like an impression of how something worked more than it's like an exact copy. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's the concept that you remember. It's the sort of spatial relationships that you remember. It's the fact that the ridge would be, you know, wrinkled and irregular. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily recall exactly how it twisted and turned, but I would just remember, okay, it doesn't need to be a straight line. It doesn't need to be like a tear. It's going to rumble a little bit and that's going to produce some good interesting aspects to it it's more like that for me it's more impressions there are some things that i remember really specifically but for the most part it's more impressions and i don't know that i necessarily go back and look at the photos i mean i have a, a good photo library that I, I would rely on from time to time but the impressions i think are, are really the what i relied on most heavily so, so a reinterpretation of the theme if you like yeah, because you're never really trying to to build it exactly as it was. Uh, it's always an adaptation. I mean, it's it's a it's a way to solve problem, and I think that's something in golf course architecture that that maybe people don't necessarily understand looking at it from the outside. But an awful lot of it on the ground is taking an architectural concept and sort of fitting it into these parameters that you're that you're dealing with. And yeah, you can you've got some freedom to move earth around and cut and fill and do different things. But at the end of the day, there are sort of certain functionalities that have to be achieved within this, you know, where am I going to get the drainage from this green to go? How do I get the drainage from this green to come off the green, go around the front bunker, not pull up in the approach, get over here. Can't have the green be too steep to put a pin on it. I want to have shots to kick in off of this bound and get over here. Okay, so you've got all these different goals for this green site. Well, making that all work on the land with the elevations that you're dealing with, I mean, that's sort of where golf course architecture and then the magic of golf course architecture really happens. I mean, I think it's, I don't want to say that it's easy, but it's its not hard to have good ideas about what architecture should be, right? I mean, I think people, you know, espouse a pretty common set of, you know, ideal architectural characteristics for something. Adapting those ideas into the ground, I think, is where, you know, the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And, and that's the really hard part. I mean, and it's not just the shaping, but it's, I mean, someone like Tom has a really good, you know, sort of like a three-dimensional vision for what he's imagining. That's the real art of architecture in my eyes is, is adapting concepts, the ideals that you have, the ideas that you want for a particular whole Getting that to actually work on the ground is the challenge and the really interesting part of it. And that's where those sort of impressions really pay off is, okay, I've seen this scenario before and I know how to connect A, B, C, and D 
and make these all marry together into something that's going to work. It's how that whole puzzle fits together, if you like. Exactly. As I mentioned earlier, you worked for a time on the grains team at Cal Club. During the construction of the course, I understand it closed for a significant amount of time to facilitate the rebuild. Interestingly, I also understand the whole grains team were re-employed with the construction contractor so the club could keep key staff employed while the course was closed during the process. In your experience of restorations such as Cal Club, is that sort of approach common? in terms of, of re-employing the existing staff? And, and how do you think the skills required for greenkeeping generally transpose themselves to a course construction site? Yeah, I mean, I think the way that it worked at Cal Club was, was not so much that the staff was employed by the contractor, it's that the green staff and Thomas Bastis, who was the superintendent at the time, were part of the construction process. And so, I mean, Thomas was essentially the project manager and the green staff executed a lot of different aspects of the construction process. There was a contractor out there who was doing a bunch of the work. Myself and Kyle Franz were doing the majority of the shaping uh, for Kyle Phillips. And then Thomas and his team, uh, they kept all the green staff on. They were doing everything from root clearing because there was you know, pretty significant tree removal and a lot of these big areas of roots to remove. They were doing a bunch of that themselves cleaning that stuff up, getting it buried. They did a lot of the grassing work uh, themselves. They did a bunch of the bunker finish, greens finish work sort of with our assistance and then kind of just help in a thousand other ways in terms of quality control, in terms of helping out when we needed fuel or we needed whatever. So they were involved in a lot of different aspects of the process. And I think the benefits are huge when you take that approach. Now, Cal Club was a little bit of a different type of project because there aren't tons, although it does seem to be happening with with greater regularity lately. But I mean, it was a little unusual at the time, I would say, that it was just totally shut, course closed, golfers gone, everything kind of blown up like a a full-on construction site. Most renovation projects, I think, tend to happen in a little bit more of a piecemeal fashion. And so the maintenance team is often busy maintaining the golf course and then also contributing to the project in different ways, like kind of doing both at the same time. At Cal Club, the maintenance operation was over. I mean, there was just, there was no maintenance happening for a long time while we were building stuff until they, you know, really got some big areas established. So the maintenance team essentially became a construction team for a period of time there. And they picked up a lot of skills during that time that they didn't have before. Different equipment skills, different skill sets in terms of building, renovating, you know, whatever it might have been. So they really elevated the skill level of their staff. They retained a lot of great staff that they might have otherwise lost if they'd sent them home. I mean, including their superintendent today, Javier Campos was one of the guys on the maintenance staff during the construction project. And so, you know, they retained a lot of key staff. They taught their staff a lot. And I think that's something that was a distinguishing factor for us as a maintenance team there was, you know, I don't think that we were afraid of taking on just about anything because we had done tree removal. We had done earth moving. We had done shaping. We had done irrigation, drainage. So we did a lot of projects really without a second thought about it because the staff had the experience to do it. And so, and a lot of that they learned during the project. So that was a big benefit. And I know other places have benefited from that approach as well. Bandon, a lot of good examples of, of places where elements of the construction or renovation team stayed on and became part of the maintenance team going forward and the, and the benefits that come with that. 
from what you just said there, George, I'm assuming your involvement on the Greens team at Gallic Club happened post-construction. If that assumption is correct, you're most likely on site for the growing period and perhaps the reopening. My understanding is that the growing process is slightly different to regular day-to-day greenkeeping. What additional challenges does the period of growing present to the Greens team? Cal Club is a great example of this. I was involved in the growing personally. I was still working in course architecture and construction. And so when Cal Club ended, I moved on to whatever the next project was, which escapes me right at the moment. But I still lived in the San Francisco Bay Area and obviously kept in very close touch with them. And so I'd go down and visit. And I mean, they had a, a rough go of it during the grow. And we finished the project late. It feels like just about every project, you know, wants to finish late. They were late in the season. They're trying to establish huge areas during sort of a rainy Northern California winter. Uh, it was hard. And, you know, the guys that did it, Thomas, Josh Smith, who's the superintendent at Arinda now and founder of flag bag, golf carry bags that you see, him, Javier, a bunch of these guys really had their hands full getting the place established after the fact. And it was a couple of years, really, after the sort of construction had ended, so to speak, before the course really got its legs underneath it, before the grass was where people wanted. And I'm sure that the that a bunch of golfers kind of came back when the club reopened and, and were, you know, a little concerned that, uh, geez, I mean, this doesn't look 100% yet. And you see where it is now. And, you know, we all had confidence, of course, that it was going to get there. But it was an eye opener for me to kind of see that, see them go through that process and to go through it, you know, myself a bunch of times. It's not turnkey. Uh, and people don't necessarily realize that every renovation project, even you know, done with the, the highest standards, it isn't just turning a switch. I mean, you're, you're dealing with a living thing in a lot of ways that, you know, doesn't always want to cooperate with schedules that people have and, you know, when they've decided opening day is going to be and all these different things when they want to take carts out, grass sort of plays by its own rules a little bit and, and you can do things to, to influence the process, but there's going to be patience required. And Cal Club was certainly an example of that. And the, the people involved in the growing really had to put in some tough days to, to get it to where it was, to where it ended up. And they deserve a lot of credit for that. And that's superintendents and their teams everywhere on golf course, construction, renovation, design projects end up being the unsung heroes after the fact that really have to take cool architectural things that, that get done and establish them, make them real, make them maintainable get them into a condition where people can play them. That's not easy work always. And I was, I was fortunate to see that process at Cal club without having to like actually participate in it. So it was a good learning experience without uh, having to really take the hard road of, of learning it like some of those other guys did. And so uh, it was interesting. I started to join them on the green staff there after they, it was maybe a couple years in, I was still in the Bay Area and I had times in between projects where I wasn't doing anything. It was just sort of hanging around. And Thomas said, hey, look, you know, if you're around for two months in the winter between projects, why don't you come down here and work? We've got stuff that we're trying to fix all the time. Come help us out with it. We know that you can really add a bunch to, to what we're trying to do. And so it ended up being a great opportunity for me because I got a chance to see architectural features that 
we had built in action, see the ones that didn't work out. And it was good to have gone through the construction process with Thomas. And, you know, I can remember having a bunch of different arguments with him about something that I was building where he's saying, oh, I'm never going to be able to maintain this. And, you know, sometimes he was right. Sometimes he was wrong. And it was, it was interesting to see, you know, which things worked out fine and which things were really problematic. And some of them were things that, that we had talked about during the construction. Some of them were things that no one had thought was going to be a problem. And all of a sudden you get there and it's like, oh, this area isn't working at all. So it was really, really beneficial for me to see all of that and live through it. And in, in a lot of cases, have to solve the problems myself that I had created <laughs> during the construction process. And so that was, it was informative uh, and it was a good, really good experience. And it taught me a lot about the continuum of, of a project that it's not done when it's done and people should expect that and, and golfers should be patient uh, because it's, it's not going to just flip on a switch. So what you're in effect saying is Mackenzie's theory of finality in design is kind of a bit of a mobile feast, depending on how things wash out. I've thought a lot about that quote, and I think what he's trying to say, I mean, the way that I interpret that, also keep in mind, Mackenzie wasn't around to see a bunch of his designs finalized. And so his concept of finality in design is a little bit different than what we're talking about right now. So I've thought about that. And I think it's, it's about achieving 99% of it, getting it dialed in. But there's no question that in reality, there's going to be stuff to tune up and there's going to be stuff that doesn't work right. There's going to be stuff that you know doesn't play like you expect it to exactly. There's going to be stuff people have an issue with, you know, from a golfer standpoint, from a conditioning standpoint golfer traffic works out in a way that you weren't really expecting surface drainage works out in a way you weren't expecting all these different things are going to arise on almost any project and those problems are going to have to be solved over time and it's not indicative of of a flaw in the process really i think that's something that people should realize is that a golf course isn't like a commodity right i mean it's not coming off an assembly line where it's just like, why isn't this working? I, I paid for a golf course that works. It is a living thing in a living environment, in an unpredictable environment where you can do all the right processes. And you know, for whatever reason, something just isn't working and it ends up being a matter of, of trying to get to the root of that problem. Sometimes it's really easy and sometimes it's not. But having that expectation that a golf course is not exactly like a manufactured product is, is an important understanding that I think the golf world benefits from the more that people can understand that. Yeah, no, I get that. I'm now going to try and very clumsily sashay back in time to the summer after your Dornock trip, where I believe you secured an entry level sod laying and rock picking role with Niebuhr Golf Construction at Hamilton Farms in New Jersey. You would go on to the next project with Niebuhr which would allow you to take on some additional responsibilities on a construction project in Arizona. These specific experiences obviously gave you a crash course in grunt work, the specific elements that go into the contractor support role on a project, not to mention an opportunity to joyride on some of the multitude of construction toys that are used on site. I'm interested to know how difficult you found mastering the fine skills required to properly control a dozer, a skid steer, the sand pro, perhaps a poly pipe welder, and whatever else was on offer. I found it to be mostly about 
time. And I think most people find it the same. I mean, the machines are designed in a way that they're meant to be used and they're meant to be learnable somewhat readily, I would say. It's about getting sort of time in the seat, so to speak, where you can just learn the feel of it and have a chance to do some things in a in relatively low pressure situations. I wouldn't at all class myself as being sort of some of these people that that I've worked with over the years who are like truly gifted operators where it's just like, I mean, they're just connected to it and they were always good at it and they always will be. And it's just a, a gift that they have. I think that I was a, a functional operator, a decent operator. I think the biggest thing that I had going for me was that I had a mental picture of, of what I was trying to accomplish. And it might have taken me longer to get there in terms of, of actually getting the machine to deliver the product that I was going for. But I had something in my mind that I was trying to achieve. And so I could eventually get some pretty good results with the, the fundamental skills that I had because I had a goal that I could work towards for a given area. So that's going back to that that sort of palette uh, discussion that we had earlier of, of different things that I, I was able to visualize things more easily because I'd seen a lot. And that helped me a lot on the equipment side of things because I kind of knew what I was trying to do, even if I wasn't the most skilled operator by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I'm assuming that the thirst for creativity through your time with Niebuhr Golf was really, I guess the construction phase was a means to an end in terms of learning the building blocks of course construction. Obviously, you dealt with machine operation there, but obviously, bill of quantity development, drainage, grading, irrigation. What of those elements are, was perhaps the most difficult, if you like, to, to get a, an understanding of? Yeah, the, the hardest part for me about working on the contractor side of things was just the pace of business. I mean, there's an awful lot riding on getting things done quickly. And there's money being spent the longer that you're sitting there. You know, there's equipment rented, there's deadlines to hit. You want to finish this project and move your staff on to the next one. This process needs to be finished in order for the next process to begin. And so if you don't get the drainage in quickly, you can't regrade it and put the irrigation in quickly. And this has to happen and the pipes arriving and all these different things. So pace was very much an overriding factor in a lot of things. And that's not to say that quality didn't matter and that, that getting things right didn't matter because obviously it was slower in the end if you did something wrong and then had to go back and redo it. So you didn't want to do that, but you wanted to work as fast as you possibly could without getting into the situation where you're having to go back and redo something. And so that was never something that that came naturally to me. It's not something that comes naturally to me now. I mean, my mindset is, is just one that, that wants to take time doing things and sort of getting them the best that I can. And certainly in the context of golf course architecture, I was much more interested in walking back to the tee, seeing what something looked like, painting the line, tweaking the line, whatever it was. And, you know, I'm sure it drove my bosses at neighbor golf crazy a little bit where they're like, okay, just stop going back there. This looks fine. Like, can you just finish this and go to the next bunker, please? And certainly I'm sure the, the guys on the, the, teams that I was working with had probably had enough of, you know, tweaking the bunker and pickaxing and shoveling to get this edge how I thought it ought to look. And so that part of it was was something that I never really got comfortable with. And and I think it's something that some people find exciting. Uh, is sort of like the 
we're racing time, we're racing weather, we're racing all this stuff. It wasn't something that I was crazy about and it wasn't a great fit for me. And, you know, that part of it, I mean, I learned a lot about sequences and order in which things need to happen. Learning to think about efficiency, I think, is an important lesson that I took from that. I mean, even if I wasn't going as fast as they wanted to go, I learned a lot about, okay, what are the steps that lead to an efficient process and what's going to delay something? How can you do even really basic things? I mean, they would teach you things about, you know, what's the most efficient way to scoop and load this truck? Because they were thinking about how many trucks per hour can we move out of this spot? We need to get this pile of dirt moved. Here, let me show you a way to scoop and load this stuff that's going to be a little faster for you. Those skills are are really valuable because efficiency does matter whether you're sort of on the architectural side or or the builder side. It does make a difference. I mean, it pays to be able to to get things done relatively quickly when you need to. But having to have that be kind of a constant concern wasn't something that I was ever sort of naturally fit for. Oh, it sounds like a great experience, but you were possibly glad to move back to the desi- design build site, which is a nice little sachet into your your barn bugle adventure uh, in Tasmania. As listeners will no doubt be aware, I have a very soft spot for that sliver of Lynxland located on the northern shores of the island state of Tasmania. I think your first new design build project with Doak, certainly your first new design build Lynx project with Doak, would be located on that aforementioned sliver of land near Bridport. As a Lynx junkie, how excited were you to hear that you were bound for Tasmania to work on the creation of a course for Richard Sattler? I was very excited and I had a very lucky internship summer with Doak. I started at Yeamans Hall and then went to Mid-Ocean in Bermuda and then took the shorts and bathing suit and stuff out of the suitcase. And the next day after we finished in Mid-Ocean, flew to Australia and went to LA and met Brian Schneider and Kyle Franz in the airport. Uh, along with some of the other members of the team, and we all flew down there. So as someone who you know, had spent a lot of time studying Lynx golf courses, someone who was really interested in Lynx golf, it was kind of a dream come true, honestly, to go work on a new Lynx development and then to get down there and see how great the ground was. I mean, it's probably one of the handful of best modern Lynx sites in the last 20 years. I would say at least, and and it might arguably be like the best one in terms of just pure quality of ground. That was pretty exciting. And to get to see it, really, clearing had just begun. So we were still walking around out there and just in the dune grasses, seeing where the stakes were, hardly anything had been touched. And then to see all that materialize was a really incredible experience. And it was, you know, really fantastic to get to be down in just a totally different corner of the world. And, you know, as you get older, it's a lot harder to, to have those kind of experiences. And so it was something that I I really appreciated at the time. And I'm, I'm glad that I recognized that it was something special to just be in a totally different place with totally different wildlife and, you know, just a very different everything about it. I mean, Tasmania is just a different place. And so it was really cool to be there. What do you remember of your initial first impressions of the property? It had a great scale to the dunes. I think that that's something that people don't necessarily always 
fully appreciate in Lynx Golf. And I think people, I mean, this is sort of where the, the Instagram era can get a little sideways is that you see these dramatic photos of some places that have these crazy dunes and it's like, wow, that's really awesome. The trouble is that a lot of places that have really huge scale to the dunes, it can end up being kind of tough to work the golf in because the really big dunes are too hard to play on. And so you usually end up with courses that kind of play in around the base of them and, and don't actually really take advantage of them. I mean, you see all these huge contours, but the course almost plays kind of flat because you're stuck down in the valleys in between. A lot of the best links golf is sort of like that medium scale dune change where it's yeah there's some bigger rolls to the ground but that that wrinkling sort of golfer scale contour is really present it's stuff that you can see over every shot isn't blind and you know crazy tumbling to where you just can't see where you're going barnboogle had a really good mix of some bigger contours some smaller ones like enough larger dunes that that Tom was able to get you up onto some high spots with the routing play down in between. You could, you know, very little blindness, a good level of, of sort of role for impacting how the ball would land impacting stance and lie. I mean, that's another thing. If the contours are so crazy, you don't actually get such a variety of stance and lie because nothing wants to settle on the slopes, right? It just all rolls down into the hollows in between. So that level of wrinkle matters for getting those sort of like awkward little downhill lies awkward little uphill lies barnboogle had all of that and a really good oceanfront site i mean that's another thing that i think people are often surprised about when they go to play links golf courses is there's a lot of really famous links courses that you don't see that much of the ocean right i mean the old course you kind of see it from 11 but you're really looking at the estuary you're not really looking at the ocean exactly you see it on one but you don't necessarily see so much carnoustie you don't see it i mean so there's a bunch of these links courses that you don't that views aren't really the highlight of the course now dornock is, is an example where the views are a big part of it Farmboogle is one where i mean you really you see a lot of the ocean and you're right on it you get up on that foredune and get some really good looks at it so it has that aspect to it. It's got the remoteness, which I think is part of the lure of Lynx Golf. I mean, it's cool when Lynx Golf courses are closer to, to town, so it's easier to get to. But there is sort of a spirit of adventure around Lynx Golf, I think, where, I mean, at least in my travels, I certainly cherish those experiences of driving out into what felt like the absolute wilderness to go play. And you're just sort of at the edge of the earth playing. I think Barnboogle has that for sure. Windy. You know, all of those great links characteristics, that site just had them right from the beginning. You worked with uh, some talent roster on the project. Tom Doak, obviously, Bruce Hepner, Brian Schneider, Kyle Franz, Michael Clayton, John Sloan, Bruce Grant, Ashley Mead and Jason McCarthy. Can you tell us what learnings you took away from your time there on site? being exposed to so many the luminaries of the design and build fraternity. It was a special place to be and a special group of people to be involved with. And Bridport is a small town, uh, the town that's that's closest to Barnboogle. We were all sort of sharing one or two houses, basically. Spent a lot of time together off-site, 
going to i mean they had two pubs in the town at the time they called one top pub and one bottom pub because one was at the top of the hill and one was at the bottom of the hill uh, i was more of a top pub guy personally but uh, some people preferred uh, bottom pub you know we had we called it top pub wednesday where you'd go out and they had like a steak dinner or something at the at the bar or whatever it was and so we spent a lot of time together on the project and off and, and talked about golf probably more than we should have been talking about golf, but just sort of nonstop for, for that whole process. And so it was really interesting to, to hear people's different thoughts, to hear people's thoughts about things as they materialized out on the course to sort of talk about some bigger picture architectural philosophy kind of stuff, and then be able to put those conversations out of the theoretical and to, to be like, okay, well, I understand your point there. How would you apply that to, you know, we're going to work on the approach for 15 tomorrow. How are we, how do you want to make that work in that context? That's just a, a really cool experience and, and a special part about building golf courses that, you know, you, you really do end up spending a lot of time together. In a lot of cases, you're all the people out building golf courses are away from their families. You're sort of spending breakfast, lunch, and dinner together and, and working out on this project and working hard and you know, seven days a week, a lot of the time. And you certainly form some bonds through that process uh, that really last. And, you know, the guys on that project, people from Cal Club, people from Pinehurst, I mean, I can point to a lot of different projects that you go through them and it's, it's hard work and it's, it's not easy and it's time consuming. And you, but, you know, you have a lot of meals together, you have a lot of discussions and arguments and then all of that. And, and I think certainly uh, some really strong relationships form as a result of that. And so, you know, a lot of those guys are, are still some of my best friends in the golf industry and really respect where so many of them have taken their careers after the fact And you never really, we all knew that Barn Boogle was special when we were working on it, but you never really fully appreciate it. I don't think when you're working, I mean, it still feels like sort of this goofy construction project where we're clowning around and doing all this different stuff. You'd, it's in retrospect, you sort of really appreciate it for like, wow, we were doing something pretty cool there. And and so it's neat to be able to look back on that and, and sort of think of the group there and think of what was accomplished and, and see what they've all gone on to do after that. No, for sure. And, you know, it, it was, I guess, 14 years in gestation, me trying to get down to Bridport to sample the delights of the Dunes course. And obviously now the Lost Farm course and Natalie Bugle Run. Have you had a chance to get back down there since you departed the somewhat constructed or fully constructed barn bugle? I have not. I have never seen the course finished, uh, which is wow. a tragedy. Uh, so I'm I'm like the rest of the world. I'm I'm living on uh, Instagram photos, and hopefully someday, in the not too distant future, we'll get to make my triumphant return to the southern hemisphere. But one of the challenges I'm having, I've got a couple of challenges right now keeping me away from the southern hemisphere. Two of them are two-year-old and a four-year-old that are not uh, not quite ready for a twenty-hour tw- trip to Australia just yet, and wouldn't necessarily appreciate uh, the reasons why I want to go down there so badly. But part of it too is that these guys keep doing these unbelievable projects down there in New Zealand and all these different. There's so much that I want to see there, and they keep building more. So I'm almost like, well, I just keep waiting until they're maybe they'll run out of steam eventually, and I can finally just go and see all of it once they're done. But some really cool stuff happening down in that part of the world, and you could certainly make a heck of a golf trip for yourself going to Tasmania and Melbourne 
alone is a like world-beating golf trip at this point. But that's surely three weeks at least. Yeah, and you throw in New Zealand. I mean, it's you know, people gave me a hard time when I went to Australia and came back. They're like, oh, you know, you go to Sydney. Yeah, it's it's in the neighborhood in the you know in the global scheme of things, but it's they're not like right next door to each other. And sort of the same thing is true of New Zealand. I mean, people were like, oh, why didn't you go to Cape Kidnappers? And it's like, well, I mean, it wasn't like right there. I mean, it's it's kind of right there, but I mean, it's it's a flight. It's a trip. It's not that easy. So trying to go and see everything down there at some point is is going to be a goal when I have like six weeks off and nobody nobody expecting anything from me during that time period. But I'm not sure when that's going to happen. So I'll shoot for a Tasmania trip at some point, maybe with a quick stop in Melbourne. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I guess what people maybe don't realize that haven't been there is the world map does not do Australia justice in terms of the size of it. I recall the first time going over there and flying from Hong Kong to Sydney. I think that flight is in 10 and a half hours or 11 hours maybe. And Captain came over the intercom on the plane after about three and a half hours. And he goes, ladies and gentlemen, if you just look at your outside your right hand window, that's Australia. You're coming in over Darwin. And like you're in the plane seven and a half hours from Darwin to Sydney. And I just couldn't, I couldn't fathom that. And they're gone. Jeez, how big is how big is this country, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a lot like, I mean, when people were asking me, like, how did I fail to go to Sydney yeah. in my time in Australia? I was busy. I mean, it's like somebody going to Miami and being like, why didn't you go to New York while you were there? And it's like, <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, like hundreds and hundreds of miles away. I mean, that's that's a big part of the problem. So uh, I think that's, it's a big country and it's hard to see everything. And they've got some cool stuff in just about every corner of it. So. Tasmania and Melbourne are compact enough that like that's a reasonable that's a reasonable trip. No, no, for sure. And and then obviously you're waiting for Seven Mile Beach to be completed. And I know obviously I Tom know. Tom Angela and Clyde are doing TRI there. So so you gotta wait and, and at least those two locations are ready for play as well. So maybe sometimes in the next eighteen months, which where your nippers will be that little bit older and uh, a little bit more able for uh, for a bit of long-haul travel. There you go. We can hope. Indeed. Listen, I want to bring you on to another place that's very dear to my heart. I know you worked on the Rossapena Strand 9. In fact, I've just returned from playing 36 holes there over the, over the past weekend. I know you're involved in the final construction and finishing works in the Strand 9 of Rossapena. The early remnants of this 9 were inspired, I believe, by the late Eddie Hackett. Pat Ruddy would then go on and do some of his particular brand of alchemy, where a Renaissance design tasked with adding some final flourishes to a complementary and contrasting test, which when paired with the Seaward Valley Nine, makes up what's now known as the Old Tom Morris Course. How much construction and finishing work was associated with the project at Rosapena? The scale of it was not really big on the nine holes that we worked on. Uh, it was mostly... The focus was really on playability more than anything. We, we did rebuild one green completely, built one entirely new green. But a lot of it was about getting the green complexes a little bit more playable in the context of what's a very windy site. I mean, if you've been up there, you know, I mean, it's it just gets very, very windy up there. And that playability component, some of the greens were kind of elevated to the point that it was it was just difficult to hold them difficult to find them 
and you'd be on the sides trying to play these shots up onto these plateaus and the wind is howling and you're going back and forth side to side and so it was just i think it was just a handful uh for people that that can still happen george i can assure you there you go we tried to at least tone that down to a degree so it wasn't so much of a large scale set of changes as it was refining what was there i mean the greens are all new but they were basically in the locations where they were and it was just a matter of melting things down some and getting to a little bit more of a playable kind of space for people sure you obviously undertook the work with eric iverson what do you remember about working with that particular maestro well i mean when you want to talk about i mentioned earlier people that are just seem to be really gifted with equipment operating i think a lot of people are struck by that working with eric is he's a he's a very gifted operator and I had worked with him at that point at, at Brock Creek Cattle Company prior to that. And so I had seen a lot of that firsthand in a very challenging context. And I know that Eric got a lot of Tom's sort of most challenging projects, I think, because he was such a skilled builder. So he had done, he had taken a lead on Stone Eagle. He had taken a lead on Rock Creek, these sort of really difficult sites. So I'm sure he appreciated the chance to work on a site that was a lot easier to work with, like Rossapena and I learned a lot from him about just building golf, but also dealing with clients and, you know, spending time out on the course with the Casey's and talking them through things that we were thinking about. He's a very nice guy, really good communicator. So, I mean, he's just a great example to follow in just about every way you can think of when it comes to building golf. He's now got some legacy up there, obviously, with not only the Strand Nine, but also his work in the ground with Angela and Tom and Clyde with the St. Patrick 18, which is just, uh, it's astounding. I, I had the pleasure of spending four days up there last July, and I'm actually, in fact, heading up there, what was me, next month for a, a fleeting fleeting visit and a round of golf at Frank Frank Jr. But he really has left some legacy in the ground at Rossipena. Yeah, and we used to look, you know, sort of daydreaming out, at that patch of land that would become St. Patrick's from the, the tail end of that old Tom Morris. I'm not sure if it's the front nine or the back nine at this point, but the one that's closer to the ocean there. The, the, the back, the back nine, yeah. So it's down the barrel of the valley, if you like, with the with the barrier down to your right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you get out to that par three kind of way out at the end there and look out in the distance and that was sort of where the site was and kind of looking longingly out there during that process and thinking of what could be. So that's another place that's very, very high on my list of, of places to get back to because I certainly have you know a lot of special memories being there and being really excited for the Casey's about you know what was to come. And, and so the fact that these years later, it has in fact come to be. Uh, I think is really, really great. And obviously the reception that St. Patrick's has gotten sort of throughout the golf world, I think speaks pretty highly of it when people are talking about it in the context of Tom's best courses and you know whether or not that's ends up being exactly where it shakes out or not, who knows. But, but I think the enthusiasm speaks volumes that people are that jazzed up about what they've seen that, that they're talking about it in the same context as Pacific Dunes and Barn Boogle and, and some of the others. No, for sure. And, and certainly from a local perspective in an Irish context, I mean, it's just wonderful having another 
world-class golf course to add to the other world-class golf courses that we have? No question. Especially in that northern part of Ireland and, and northern Ireland itself, you've got a, a world-beating collection of courses within a, a relatively short drive of one another in the grand scheme of things. And then a lot of really good second level courses, if you want to call them that there's the, you know, the world beaters of Port Rush and County down. And it sounds like St. Patrick's is in that category, but then so many of the others that are kind of sprinkled in between there along that coast, that, that Northern part of Ireland is a, is a heck of a great golf trip now. Did you have much of an opportunity to explore the Northern coast while you were doing the works or either before or afterwards? Not as much as I would have liked to. I've been to to Port Russian County Down a couple of times each, either during work at Rossapena or during my master's thesis year, I went up to Northern Ireland and did some studying on those courses. So I was familiar with those and and then the Rossapena area, but I didn't make it around to that sort of some of the other courses in the region that, that people speak so highly of Port Salon and some of these others that are really, really highly regarded. So a lot for me to still see up in that area at some point and another trip that I'd love to make, but it's just such a beautiful part of the world. And again, it's that same feeling of just being out at the end of the earth, especially in Donegal. I mean, it's, you really feel like you're out at the end of the earth there and that's just a great place to go and, and get away from it all. It's, it's achingly beautiful up there and, and I couldn't uh, recommend a trip to Donegal for golf uh, enough. In 2010, just if we take a look at Pinehurst briefly, uh, an opportunity to arose for you to work with the current Crenshaw team on the restoration of the iconic Donald Ross design Pinehurst number no. 2. I'm sure you didn't have to think too long and hard to grab that particular opportunity with both hands. I'm interested to know how familiar you were with number two prior to arriving on the site? I had played it once in its in its previous rendition. So a lot more rough, no sandy waste areas. It was still a relatively wide golf course, I would say at that time, but but narrower and just a lot of a lot of Bermuda grass rough, formal looking bunkers and I mean, I think people have seen the pictures of the, tra- of the transformation. So a little bit more of a Parklandy look to it, it had. I'm just wondering, what was the scope of your involvement at number two, George? I started on the project there. They were probably about halfway done. Uh, so they had a lot of the sandy waste areas had been exposed uh, and they were working away on those. And they had done the greens expansions that they wanted to do. There were two greens that they had kind of recaptured a couple of pin locations on. And so by the time I got there, there was still a pretty reasonable amount of bunker work to be done and not much in the way of adding new bunkers. We didn't add tons of new bunkers. There were a few that we had to restore completely that had been just lost entirely and added a couple. But a lot of it was taking the existing bunkers and restoring that kind of more ragged character to them, the more natural character to them. And then connecting that out into the sandscapes that surrounded and deciding whether they were going to be sort of surrounded in turf, were they going to bleed out into the sand and wire grass? And, and how was that all going to sort of work from a planting perspective, from a shaping perspective? And that varied from, I mean, the bunker renovations there varied from me and a handful of guys with sort of pickaxes and shovels, just kind of roughing up the edge of a bunker to 
being in there with an excavator and, and doing kind of a larger scale intervention. So a bunch of bunker work, a bunch of finish work. And then Kyle Franz and I spent a bunch of time at the end, just sort of planting wire grass bushes in places where we wanted them and, you know, roughing up bunker edges and faces and things to try to get it to look, to try to accelerate the aging process, honestly, because it looked newly renovated and we were trying to, you know, really trying hard to, to get it back to where it looked a little bit like it did in the old photos, a little bit rougher, a little bit more weather-worn, just to sort of accelerate that process. It must have been pretty cool working on a place like Pinehurst 2, which obviously is considered to be the cradle of golf in, in, in the US. It was crazy. I mean, I've told this story before, but I, I remember the first time going out there and it was, it was just so torn up that I was just flabbergasted, really. I mean, I remember asking, I was like, does people know that you, what you guys are doing out here? Like, it was just blown up like a construction site. It's pretty shocking to see a course of that stature going through that level of a of a renovation. And, you know, as you know, if you've been there, it's sort of right in the middle of the town. So there's people walking by and the place is all, I mean, so I certainly, uh, right when I got on site, uh, I was struck by the fact that that we had a an awesome responsibility that we were dealing with and a big project that had a lot of eyes on it and a lot of expectations. And it was certainly, it hit home pretty quickly that it was an important project and, and one that was going to require full attention. But the great thing was, at least for me, I mean, they had such a good handle on where they were going and what the vision was for it. It benefited a lot from the fact that they had such good old photography of the course that it was that lent itself a lot to really providing a direction and some guidance. I mean, there wasn't a lot of uncertainty about like, how are we going to do this? It was more, you know, here's where we're going. How do we get there type of a process? And certainly Bill and Ben, if you've spent any time around them, lend a level of comfort to anything that they're working on. I mean, they don't ever seem flustered. They certainly seem confident in where they're heading they know it's going to work out right and it's just a matter of, of taking the time to get it there and so they were a great pair to work for on that project they obviously had a great vision for where to go with it uh, and that's all proven out uh, as things have you know since the restoration has now been probably more than a decade at this point sustainability seems to have been a watchword in terms of the current Grandchild approach at pinehurst much of the restoration work involved the rationalization of the grassing plan, including significant rewilding of indigenous vegetation and a reintroduction of the native sandy waste areas, as you said. In addition to this, I understand that post-renovation, the historical practice of overseeding rye into the dominant Tifway Bermuda fairways was discontinued in favour of painting the dormant Bermuda sward. What agronomic benefits have Pinehurst experienced in light of both the current Crenshaw's restoration and their decision to apply paint in lieu of overseeding on the 10 courses of Pinehurst. The discontinuing of the overseeding process is an interesting one. Uh, and it's actually something that I learned about after coming to the green section more so than during the project. They were just, had just kind of started experimenting with the painting while we were working on the restoration. 
kind of see what they wanted to do, how it was going to turn out. But sort of the genesis of it was, I think that, that Bill and Ben had said that they really felt like the overseeding, the softness that came with it, the sort of inconsistent conditions throughout the year, that the overseeding process was not something that was consistent with their vision for how the course ought to play and for the changes that were being made. In addition, the disruption that comes with the overseed and the negative impacts throughout the year were becoming increasingly problematic for Pinehurst as it became more of a year-round resort. So they were getting more summer play when the health of that Bermuda grass mattered more. And the overseeding process has negative implications for how the Bermuda grass comes out of winter, how it establishes through the spring into the summer, the work that needs to be done to get the course into shape for the summer. I think that was more okay with them when summer wasn't considered an important season there in terms of golf. But Golf at Pinehurst is a 365-day deal now, and so how their product performed in the summertime mattered a lot to them. And kind of a big downside of the overseeding for them was that the time to establish that is in like the early fall. So they've got the course torn up. They've got it soaking wet, trying to establish all the seed right during what is probably the best weather of the year in Pinehurst. So they're, they're disrupting their prime product at the best time of year for playing it really. And I think all of those things and in the process having to do more mowing, more watering during the winter, more irrigation, more recovery work in the spring to try to get the Bermuda grass back into shape, to patch dead areas with sod, all the stuff. There were some really strong business reasons behind why they wanted to make that change. There were architectural and playability reasons why they wanted to make that change and a lot of sustainability, resource use reasons behind it as well. And as is often the case, those sort of sustainability goals, it's great when those dovetail nicely with business reasons. And a lot of the time, if you're using less resources from you know just a consumption standpoint, you can also be saving money, which makes the business case for it as well as the environmental case for it. And in this case, business, environmental, and playability kind of all married up into a situation where it just really made a lot of sense to make that change. And they've they've really enjoyed the benefits from it ever since. Well, undoubtedly. I'm just interested to know, has Pinehurst's decision to paint instead of overseed led to a domino effect you know, at other golf properties located in the southern states of America? I'm not as familiar with the full context of what was going on at the time, but I think it's certainly, so I don't know how many other courses were painting at the time versus not, but I know that Pinehurst was on the early adoption scheme of things. I'm sure they were one of the highest profile examples of making that change. And I think it's something that you're seeing more and more of. Number one, as, as golf in a lot of places is, is more of a year round thing uh, where even in these you know, southern states where summer used to be considered, well, that's not our prime season. People are playing year round. Uh, and especially these past couple of years, you look, I mean, golf has just been absolutely booming in the United States as it has been elsewhere. And it has been all year round. And so there's demand to play all the time. There's expectations for better conditions throughout the year. At the same time, in a lot of places, water is, is a growing concern. Even just this, you know, the past year or so, having seed for overseeding was difficult for places. And so places were having to contemplate going away from overseeding because they simply couldn't get the seed that they normally wanted to because of different supply chain issues. And so we're going to see how things go, but, but I think that there's going to be a trend towards 
more courses moving away from overseeding one way or another. A lot have already, and I, and I wouldn't be surprised to see more because there are sort of year-round playability benefits. There's resource savings. Uh, there's cost savings. And, you know, if you're playing better for more of the year and you have happier customers and you're spending less money doing that, that's sort of the sweet spot. Maybe as a lead into the next section, obviously I mentioned earlier that as the Jew that you're manager of education for the USGA Green Section. You might just tell us what the USGA Green Section Education Department do. Yeah, the Green Section is, is one of those parts of the USGA that, that I think a lot of people don't know very much about. And the USGA does quite a bit that, that I didn't even know about when I started working there. But the Green Section has been around for, we celebrated our 100th anniversary in 1920. So it's been part of the USGA for a long time. If I had to sort of summarize it quickly, I, mean, I think there's sort of five key things the Green Section does. Research, funding research, and promoting research into turf grass and environmental sustainability. I think the USGA is funding almost $2 million worth of research this year, and it's been $47 million since the early 80s. So it's a very big turf grass and environmental research operation that the green section is involved in, in overseeing and guiding. And that does things like develop new grasses that people use on courses, grasses that require less pesticides, require less water, that can grow in new places that they couldn't grow before, that play better. All of those types of things is, is something that USGA research helps fund. Uh, we've also got a course consulting service. We've got agronomists throughout the country that visit golf courses all throughout the United States and provide sort of, you know, site-specific guidance on turf grass management, playing conditions, all these different things. Basically, whatever challenges the courses are dealing with, we have staff out there to help and they visit, you know, hundreds of golf courses every year. So it's, that's a big part of what we do. And they obviously benefit from the information that comes from our research program and that they're providing that information out to their clients that they visit in the field. Uh, we've got the education department where I work that publishes articles written by the agronomists, articles written by our researchers. We create our own original education materials that go out through our magazine, The Green Section Record, or go out through USGA channels. We've also got various technology tools that we're developing. Sort of the earliest days of that, probably the USGA is probably most known for is the stint meter, but we've moved on from there to things like the True Firm. We're working on data collection platforms now, our USGA Deacon platform and a lot of other exciting technology tools that courses can use to improve management. And then sort of the final piece of it all is, is championship agronomy. We have a director of championship agronomy that is involved in all USGA championships, and our agronomists also help our USGA championship team with setup, with conditioning, with everything at all of our championships in terms of the course prep. And so those are sort of the five key pillars of the green section, I'd say. As far as what the education department specifically does, the foundation of it, I'd, I'd say sort of our, our starting point is the green section record, which has been our publication since 1921. So a year after the green section was founded, the green section record went through different names, but our publication started being published. And, and in those times, the goal really was knowledge of golf course maintenance and communication between courses was so limited that it was really just trying to share any kind of information and, and to help people really learn like how to maintain a golf course. Like we have early articles about Pinehurst, I think one by Rich and written by one of the Tufts about 
there being a time at Pinehurst where people doubted whether there could be grass in the fairways at all and that people were recommending that they just do sand fairways. I'm not joking. Just sand fairways rolled smooth and that would be an acceptable product because they couldn't get grasses to grow for golf down there. Just to clarify there, George, at one point initially they were sand greens, isn't that correct? Yeah, they had sand greens, but but not sand fairways. But I mean, I think that the the tee to green conditions were so dubious that they weren't even sure that, that grass was the right medium for golf down there and that maybe the whole thing could just be sand. And so that shows you how far agronomy has come, but it also shows you where it was at when when the green section started. And so in the early days, it was really about educating, trying to get some science behind because there was a lot of superstition in, in course management as well at the time. Obviously today, it's a highly scientific field. Superintendents are far more connected with each other than was ever possible before with social media, with the internet. And so, you know, our role has shifted as those connections have grown and as the expertise of the practitioners has grown, but we still play a really active role in trying to educate both practitioners and educate golfers because a big part of a superintendent's job is convincing their stakeholders about the right things to do. The superintendent knows the right things to do, but convincing the golfers that make the decisions at the course to let them do those things, to invest in those things is, is a whole different kettle of fish. So we do a lot there. Uh, we do a lot with golfer education. We also participate in the research projects and speak at schools and help with any sort of USGA green section education, things at conferences, all that different kind of stuff. So it's a different thing every day, really, in the education department. Just apropos that last comment that you made, I'm minded just to mention a Tom Simpson quote, which, uh, again, paraphrased, but goes along the lines of the only thing that should interfere with the golf course is the weather. Yeah, well, exactly. And it's sad that in the, whatever it is, probably 100 years since he made that quote, uh, the, the superintendent is still continually interfered with by a variety of things other than, than just the weather. And so... We're certainly there to, to try to help with that as much as we can. Well, thank you very much for your your constant prodding and cajoling, etc., etc. <laughs> yeah. Look, at your, your former colleague, Tom Doak, espoused the following statement, that the most valuable superintendent is the one that can keep the course in good condition at the least expense. I'd just like to take a look at sustainability, which I know you've written widely on, specifically just initially in terms of inputs and expectations following on from that Simpson comment. The golfing public are obviously exposed to more golf and TV now than ever before, uh, as the pictures that are beamed into our houses most often exhibit wall-to-wall monocultured roofs, fairways and greens tweaked to peak just at the right time in conjunction with tournament showtime. Many years ago, I overheard an industry professional in Ireland posit the thought that in an Irish context, the development of Mount Juliet and the Ryder Cup course at the K Club had done so much to raise the course conditioning bar for the rest of the industry. Since then, obviously, Tom Fazio has renovated the Durham Manor. Obviously, this multi-million euro renovation spared no expense and was undertaken with the sole aim of hosting the Ryder Cup. Do you have any thoughts on how we can better moderate golfers' expectations with regard to the presentation of golf courses? Well, I spend about half of my time at the USGA working on this issue in, in one form or another. And the short answer is probably no. I don't I don't exactly know how to how to get us there with, with moderating the expectations other than to continually try to educate and try to highlight the consequences of those expectations. I mean, I think that that's 
trying to connect those dots is an important part of it of, okay, we have these expectations. What do those cost? And are those expectations reasonable for what you're paying, for what you're prepared to pay, for the environment in which your course is located, for the amount of play that your course gets? Connecting those dots, I think, is where there's a lot of room for potential improvement and helping people to understand a little bit more. I think the fact that people, it seems, are traveling a little bit more widely than maybe they used to and seeing a few more courses and and seeing some courses that are, you know, not necessarily the most famous, the championship courses, the the really high-end places, but but some other courses highlighted by way of social media where, you know, I think social media has done a really good job of raising the profile of places like Sweeten's Cove or, you know, any number of these examples where conditioning is not necessarily going to be like the highlight of the experience, right? And so, but people still go and have a great time and, and maybe they take something away from that experience that helps them think a little bit more about, you know, what do you really need from conditioning? I think that's a really important place to try to get people is thinking more about what do they really need? Like less about what might be nice, what would I, you know, what might I want in an ideal circumstance, but what do I need to enjoy the game? And what does that cost? And is that something that, where is that balance point? I mean, I think it's a, and cost is part of the equation too. I mean, I think as, as golf gets more expensive, the expectations increase, right? Because you're spending more. And so you're thinking, gosh, I spent all this money. Now I'm looking around wondering why this isn't like this. So then golf costs more, your expectations increase which makes golf cost more, which makes your expectations increase. And you kind of get on a little bit of a hamster wheel there where it's just round and round you go of increasing expectations and increasing costs. And I think getting off that wheel would be a really great place for a lot of golf courses to go. I think the pandemic provided a pretty instructive case study, uh, at least in the United States, about the fact that golf could thrive uh, with a lot less bells and whistles with you know a scaled back version of of course, preparation, conditioning, presentation. I mean, a lot of places didn't have rakes out for months and months and months. And the bunkers had a few more footprints in them, but the courses were busier than ever. And, you know, the game has been really on kind of on a high ever since, even though, you know, the bunker rakes came back and a lot of the old conditions came back. And certainly people can make the point that, well, given everything that was going on in the world at the time and given the expected return to normal, people were able to moderate their expectations for those, you know, that year and a half, whatever it was that, okay, they were willing to put aside their expectations for that time and and just enjoy the game because of everything else that was going on. But of course the conditions and everything has to come back the way that it was. I think it demonstrated one way or another that it is possible to have a lot of fun playing golf, have golf be a really meaningful part of your life, even in a very scaled back version of, of what a lot of people have come to expect. And yeah, maybe it's it's not going to go back to that, but I think it it's an opportunity to look at that that time period and think, you know, you've now seen what that what a scaled back version of the modern golf experience looks like. You enjoyed it. You know, are there some lessons that can be taken from that? going forward. And, you know, maybe a bunch of it doesn't end up sticking uh, and a bunch of it hasn't and a bunch of it has gone back the way that it was. But I think it's a it's a good year to a good period of time to reflect on and think about what we really, really need to enjoy the game 
versus what we're accustomed to. And part of it is the making willing changes as golfers. Big part of it, I think, going forward is going to be that in a lot of places, people's expectations may be forced to change, whether they like it or not, as a result of things like water, uh, certainly in the Western U.S., that is going to be a factor uh, going forward or just like what is possible in terms of conditioning. Water is obviously a pretty big factor in that in areas where you don't get rain for months, potentially. I mean, I, I lived a long time in the San Francisco Bay Area, and it basically doesn't rain a drop there from April until October. And so you're entirely dependent on irrigation during that time period. And if your course doesn't have access to water for one reason or another, or the cost of water becomes so astronomical that it's just, you know, it's threatening the, the survival of the facility, there's going to be some hard choices that have to be made. In the rest of the country, everywhere in the country, labor is a huge factor where just having people to come and work in course maintenance is increasingly difficult. It's harder to hire and retain people. Courses have open positions they can't fill in spite of their best efforts, in spite of raising wages. You know, maybe they haven't raised them enough, but they've tried raising wages and still can't fill the positions. That obviously all is going to have an impact on expectations going forward because there's going to be some real limits to what's possible. There's always going to be places that have and you know, effectively endless resources that are prepared to spend them on on course conditioning. And and I think that there's obviously a place in the game for that. And there's nothing wrong with people spending money the way that they want to. But the vast majority of the courses, you know, in the world don't have endless resources and would benefit from really thinking about like what is most important to them and trying to focus on that because I think it's going to become increasingly important to make those decisions. And and just picking up on that water piece, uh, I know you were involved in the restoration of Pasatiempo with the Renaissance team, which was undertaken over a number of years and completed in 2007. In the recent podcast episode I did with Richard Pannell, I mentioned Pasatiempo's sustainable approach to utilizing a grey water supply from the local town of Scotts Valley, California. Since then, I've been able to ascertain some additional facts in relation to their sustainable water supply source. It's useful to initially understand that the environmental and geographic challenges for the Greens team at Pasatiempo. The course is located in the Parlick, California, which, as you say, it doesn't rain from April to October. And up to 2017, the course depended upon potable mains water to meet the irrigation requirements for the golf course. This is quite ironic, actually. Significant gratitude must be extended to a thoughtful and foresighted civil engineer who in the late 1970s specified and included the necessary valve infrastructure within the pipework that skirts the past property to allow the club to easily tap into the source of supply further on down the line. Discussions with the town authorities commenced in 2007 to seek approval for tapping into the pipeline. And obviously cognizant of their environmental footprint of the club reduced the total turf grass acreage by 25% in 2010. Due to the increased charges, the club's annual cost for war from, from the main supply was actually $1 million from 2014 onwards. Finally, I'm pleased to report that 38 years after the initial wastewater scheme was completed and 10 years after initial discussions commenced, the connection was completed. It now actually feeds up to 80% of the course's annual water requirement after passing through a significant additional on-site underground treatment processing facility. Sorry for that long and drawn-out explanation. <laughs> Is passes somewhat of a poster child for responsible utilization of water sources? I think that Pasatiempo is a really good example of some of the tough decisions that some courses are just going to have to make. Because Pasatiempo, when we started working there 
for the restoration was the greenest thing that you'd ever seen wall to wall, wall to wall, green grass everywhere. You know, that was how the course was maintained. And they went through some uh, really tough drought years where they had significant course damage uh, as a result of water restrictions. And the writing was kind of on the wall, but their water supply was very vulnerable to disruption. And they didn't necessarily know from one year to another what they were going to get. And so they they needed to make some changes and they did so. And, and that's where the sort of the turf reduction came from, which was a dramatic change to the course from the one that I knew when we started. And the connection to the non-potable water is sort of the next iteration of that. And even when they did the turf reduction, to their credit as well, they redesigned the irrigation system at the same time and redesigned it around that new footprint. I think specifically to prevent themselves from backsliding into, you know, okay, we get into some wetter years, let's start bringing some grass back out. They don't really have the ability to do that anymore. It's a, it's a limited, golf course footprint is limited by the irrigation footprint that they've locked themselves into. And the connection to the non-potable water supply is sort of the culmination of what's been, you know, really a decades long process of, of water reduction. And my guess is that they're not done trying to find other ways to help save water because they're the climate that they're in and just the sort of the unique situation of their water supply is going to constantly put pressure on them. And then they're not alone. Other courses in the sort of greater Bay area last year lost big amounts of turf because of water restrictions because it was a dry winter the year before a lot of courses in the area there have converted from cool season grasses to warm season grasses because they're more durable to drought conditions because they recover more after long periods of dry weather because they use less water in total so you're going to see more and more of that in the places where there's pressure i think what Tiempo really shows is that and honestly what a lot of places show i mean there's a lot of places in the bay area sort of California area in general, I would say, that show that you can have better playability or you can at least be sort of playability and experience neutral and still do really big changes in how courses use water, how courses use resources. You know, the Valley Club of Montecito was another great example where they were very heavily focused on like bright green ryegrass for a long time down in Santa Cruz. And it just got unsustainable from a water use standpoint. So they switched to Bermuda grass and ended up with a course that played firmer and faster for more of the year. Golfers were happier with the conditions they had year round and they were using less water and they were sort of insulated against water shortages in a way that they weren't before, where they were really vulnerable before. The cost factor is another one. Unfortunately, not every course has access to sort of secondary sources of water. In some places, you just simply can't connect to recycled water. And so some places, I mean, that $1 million a year water bill, I don't think that's terribly uncommon for some places. And, and I think there are some places that are dealing with just astronomical water costs that continue to go up and up and up. So, I mean, that's going to have to change by the economics of it and by the fact that restrictions can kind of come down in ways that really put a squeeze on places where they just need to make changes. In terms of around the country, there's a lot of places in the U.S. where water use maybe isn't as front of mind because water is plentiful. However, water use is connected in a lot of ways to, to other resource use on golf courses. And so even if you're not necessarily that worried about water use right now, number one, you don't know what's coming in the future. 
You don't know what sort of restrictions might come down the line from local government, state government, whatever it might be. And courses everywhere are worried about labor. So a lot of golf courses, I mean, there's no golf course, I don't think, that wants to be watering more than it needs to be. And so whether it's reducing irrigated acreage because you're worried about labor or reducing irrigated acreage because you're worried about water, I think more and more courses are going to be looking for those savings going forward. And I think that places like Pasatiempo, places like Pinehurst that have kind of gone down this road are going to end up being the case studies that that places look at down the road and say, okay, well, here's how they did it. Here's how they did it with minimal impact on playability. Here's some ways that, you know, it actually enhanced the playability or the aesthetics of the course in, in ways. And let's try to emulate that. Let's fit it to our own unique environment. I mean, not every place is going to be able to do sandy wiregrass landscape like Pinehurst does because they just don't have the soil. They just don't have the vegetation, but there's ways to move away from maintained irrigated turf in any environment. It's just a matter of, you know, being creative and, and trying to figure out what fits your specific situation. Particularly, obviously, if you're a golf club that's lucky enough to be built on sand. And obviously, we've touched on some of your writing for the USGA there in terms of the Green Section Education Department. I'm going to bring you back to 2013, where you published a book entitled Sand and Golf, obviously focusing on how terrain shapes the game of golf. Just wanted to know initially what prompted you to write the book. I was always interested in how important sand was for really great golf course architecture. It's something that obviously had struck me working on Lynx courses, spending time in Dornoch, reading the writings by Tom Doak and Alistair McKenzie that really highlighted how important sandy soil was for golf. And then working with Tom, you know, he was having all of his greatest success on sandy sites. I mean, he's done some great golf courses on non-sandy sites as well, but he certainly hammered home to me that if we can be working on a sandy site, that's where we want to be because we're going to have better conditions. The architecture is easier. The creative process is more fluid. Everything about it, construction process is simpler. Everything about it is, is more the way that we want to work for these reasons. And, and so it was something that I was always interested in. In my master's thesis year, I wrote my master's thesis in graduate school about golf courses and coastal dune environments because I was I was really interested in the topic. And, you know, certainly some of my advisors would accuse me of having crafted that topic as an excuse to go to Scotland and Ireland to spend two and a half months studying Lynx golf courses. It is a great excuse though, George. Whatever way, whatever way it shook <laughs> out, uh, whatever the motivations behind it were, you know, they wouldn't award me the scholarship up front to go and do the research, but they were impressed enough with the outcome of the research afterwards that they sort of found a way to award it to me uh, after the fact. So it's a little different yeah. than Tom's trip where he kind of got the money up front. I had to, I had to front the money and, and got it later. Mate, tomato, tomato, it's all good. Yeah, either way. So I did a lot of research in that area during that time and became more intrigued with, you know, not only the golf elements of it, but thinking about fitting a golf course into a broader environmental context and finding ways to do that and finding ways to make it fit and finding ways to respect the environmental processes that are going on all around the course, integrate them into the course, you know, avoid a golf course being a disruption to the processes and, and allow it to kind of incorporate the processes and, you know, in a perfect world, enhance them and preserve you know, valuable environmental resources that are out there. I think the golf courses should be doing all of that. And, you know, thinking about sand and golf kind of got me thinking about 
all of those bigger picture things. But it really started because I was fascinated by courses on sandy ground. I had been to Lynx courses and Heathland courses and, you know, some of the great sandy sites around the U.S. and had connected the dots that I had been to Melbourne, you know, had connected the dots that, hey, sand is a common denominator in a lot of this. What is it about it that makes it so special? Throughout the book, you speak about the washboard effect. How would you characterize this feature to listeners? Yeah, and we touched on it a little bit earlier. It's that sort of wrinkled scale of a fairway contour that is not so big as to be a roll where the ball kind of rolls up and settles off of it, but just a wrinkled ground. It almost feels like you're walking over a washboard. It kind of looks like a washboard when the light gets really, really low in the evening. That makes for such great golf because you get those subtle changes in stance and lie. I mean, that the biggest impact there is that you now have a slightly downhill lie versus a slightly uphill lie. Uh, and as you know, especially when you're playing links golf, that makes a huge difference in how you're going to approach a hole because you're into the wind and you're sitting up on this little uphill lie. It's going to tend to balloon your ball way up into the air. You've really got to think about the trajectory. You've really got to think about the club selection. You play that same hole and the ball rolls a foot and a half farther forward and you've got a downhill lie that's going to ask a completely different shot of you. And that's a fascinating part about playing links golf that is hard to replicate elsewhere. And it, it's just something that seems to kind of naturally occur on Linksland. And it's, it's one of the huge assets that, that Linksland has to offer in terms of creating interesting and like ever-changing golf. How do you, as a design builder and shaper, how do you go about shaping features like that? In the sand. It's really hard. Uh, even when you're really trying to do it, you're in fairly large piece of equipment most of the time, and it's a difficult thing to create. Best thing you can do is preserve it when you have it, because there are sort of typically some micro contours that are present in almost any situation. If you can leave them alone for the most part and not smooth everything off, which is sort of a, I mean, that's the tendency of working with larger equipment is that You've got this big, broad bulldozer blade, and it just wants to just smooth everything off. That's what it's built for. That's what it's designed for, is smoothing everything off. So trying not to do that when you're out there working is the first step. I mean, it's always easier to preserve something cool than it is to create something cool. There, does that mean, in effect, that you're, you basically don't traverse that with foot traffic or anything it's basically just left to and you, you grasp what's there or how can you preserve something like that on a construction site if you're out there working on a fairway and there's some cool little wrinkled contours it's not that you don't traverse them at all it's that when you're out there in larger equipment you'll try to leave that for the finishing processes where people come through with smaller rakes come through with a little motorized bunker rake and just kind of slick things off. There's always a subsequent process that goes through with smaller equipment after the big equipment has come through and kind of smooths everything off to the point that you can actually plant it and, and establish grasses there. If you can preserve those features so that they survive to that finishing process, and then if you have a finishing process that is then sensitive enough that it preserves those features because there are some ways to finish golf courses that are more efficient that tend to, again, wipe away cool little features like that. Sensitivity to what's there is, is part of the program, the clearing phase to the shaping phase to the finishing. Then you've got a chance of preserving some of those cool little features. When you're trying to create them, it's a lot harder. 
it's not impossible, but it's really time consuming. It's really difficult to do if you don't have sandy soil because drainage becomes an issue where it's, you're creating all these little hollows and wrinkles and they don't drain that great. It's annoying to mow them. And so it starts to get to be like impractical in certain respects. So the best thing is when you have them there and being smart enough to stay away from them. Sure. And we're back obviously into the interplay between the design shaping element and obviously the maintenance post growing. So obviously you've got to be conscious of the two to make sure that the ripples aren't too extreme that you can't actually even maintain them. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it really helps to have superintendent uh, who's involved in the construction process throughout, who's there to advise you on, you know, it's great to be able to just grab someone and say, Hey, you know, you think you can mow this after we're done with it and they'll weigh in on it. And things are really at their best when you have a superintendent who's willing to try because there are going to be some situations that the answer isn't totally clear. And I can remember talking with Ken Nice about this out at Bandon Dunes and, and asking him, Hey, you know, how did you handle it when Tom or Jim or whomever, you know, shaped one of these kind of odd features and, and you were left to think about maintaining it. He, he said, you know, my outlook on it was that we would always try. And if we couldn't, then we couldn't and we would smooth it off or we'd fix it after the fact. But we were willing to try within reason, obviously, and see how it went. That's a really great outlook to have. And it's not always totally common. And I understand why, because superintendents don't want to have a ton of things to fix after the fact. And they, they don't want to hear from golfers about, hey, why is this like this? And you know, why aren't you taking care of this the way that it should be? When in fact, it's the architecture that caused the problem, not the superintendent's maintenance program. But, you know, being too conservative with what you're willing to try to do can end up detracting from the architecture a little bit. And, and I think that's a, that's a tension between architecture and maintenance that, that's kind of always trying to find a balance is that you've got to be willing to push, you know, a little bit to do something really special. I mean, going through Cal Club, that was a big part of it. I mean, we did a lot of features out there that were really, really cool that were also going to be annoying to maintain. And, and time consuming to maintain and labor intensive to maintain. And that was something that the club wanted, that the club was eyes wide open about in terms of the resources that were going to be required. And that Thomas was, was open-minded enough to, to let us try to do some things after the fact, like I said earlier, there's stuff that we had to go back and fix because we pushed it a little too far with some things. And, you know, that's part of the process too. And, and being willing to go through that process is really the best way to get to a really good product. George, I ask all of my guests the same final two questions. The first one obviously pertains to your golfing bucket list. You might let us know what courses are on your bucket list and why they appear there. You may choose four or five. It's up to you. Or indeed six. So whatever you want. It's a loose approximation of four or five, six, or however many else you wish to pick. Okay. The Well, we've talked a little bit in our conversation today about a few of them. So Barnboogle and Lost Farm, because I've, I've seen neither since they were finished and I had only ever walked the ground for Lost Farm and never saw it shaped or under construction at all. So that's two right there. While I'm in Tasmania, I do want to see Seven Mile Beach while I'm in town. So you can add three right there. Well, George, arguably Barnboogle is one, not two, because okay. obviously all you've right. got to throw... You, look, and, and look... I, Correct. I had this. I had this argument with Adrian Logue and Rob Murray last week 
Barn Bugle is one, it's not three. So so okay. that's that's so ten, that counts. Barn Bugle is one. Uh, Seven Mile Beach two. Uh-huh. You can call the entire Terraidi Terai complex one if you want. That can be uh, same owner. That's cool. Yeah. There you go. That can be three. Uh, I would really like to see St. Patrick's now that that's gone from being a, a daydream to apparently an incredible reality. So that one can be. I'm sure Frank Jr. and the rest of the cases would love to see you. They were asking after you, in fact, when I said I would have you on during the week. Did you get a chance to walk around the site at all when you were up there? I never walked over on the ground at all. We, we looked over from the fence, but kind of never made it over there. It was so far off in the, the horizon of their thinking, I think, at the time that it was kind of like, yeah, we own actually all the way out over there. Maybe someday we'll do something. Uh, and, and it finally came to be. So... I think that's pretty cool. And if I add one more, Cabot St. Lucia looks pretty good to me, honestly. And a trip to the Caribbean sounds nice to me, honestly. So I would think that sounds like a good dovetailing of a of a vacation there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And of all, of all those selections, it would seem to be the most realistic in the short term to get across the line with the kids and the missus and whatnot. Yeah. I could easily convince my wife and family to go to St. Lucia. Yes. Tell me, when are Riley and the lads hoping to finish that? I don't know the answer to that question. So I hope that it's it's sooner than later, but I think it, it takes time down there. Uh, it looks like it's a, you know, not a super fast process. And so I think they've got a ways to go, but hopefully sooner than later. I'm, I'm excited to see it, but the photos just look absolutely unbelievable. No, they certainly do. They certainly do. Look, the final question, as always, relates to two golf book recommendations. Uh, if any of our listeners wish to augment their golf book library shelf or shelves what would you recommend mr waters i don't know that i have anything highly insightful to offer here i mean golf courses of the british isles by bernard darwin i think is is one that i would definitely add uh number one in terms of the just the quality of the writing it's just wonderful to read the way that he he writes about golf courses and it's so descriptive. I mean, you just, you feel like you're just right there and the round tree illustrations obviously go a long way in enhancing that book. So that's a great one. And golf architecture in America, George Thomas, I think is again, really great writing. The sketches are really, really compelling. I mean, just the drawings are super cool. Some great photos in that book as well of what those courses used to look like. And for somebody who spent a lot of time in California, it's, it's neat to, have been familiar with a lot of those courses and see how he originally sketched them and, and talked about them. So those two, I think, are, are ones that certainly are on people's radars, but they don't have them yet. I uh, definitely recommend them. Oh, it's good motivation for them if they don't have them yet. Before we let you get back to your busy day, perhaps you might let listeners know where they can buy your book, how they can access your writings for the USGA, and how they might reach out to you to say hello or ask a question if they are so inclined. Sure. Uh, to buy Sand and Golf is uh, a couple different ways to do it. They can order on Amazon uh, or they can order directly from me. You can just touch base with me via social media. I'm at G Waters Golf on Twitter, on Instagram. Just send me a direct message. Whether you order on Amazon or whether you order directly from me, the books all come from my attic one way or the other. And so uh, you're just paying Amazon a little extra uh, if you choose to order it by way of that route. So the recommendation there is just buy from George Waters. Don't give Amazon the cut. 
Yep, that's the that's the the most affordable way. The other upside uh, to that is that if you order directly from me, I can sign it for you, which is nice. Um, so, and I'm always happy to do that, especially if it's a gift or something. That's a great way to do it. Uh, in terms of accessing my writings for the USGA, the best thing to do is to subscribe to the USGA Green Section Record. It's free, digital publication. We publish twice a month. A lot of great information in there about a lot of different topics on that intersection between course maintenance and sustainability and construction. So a lot to learn there for people that are really interested in golf courses, golf course conditioning. Uh, so a lot of my writings appear there. Keep an eye out on usga.org because uh, we do education work for the USGA platforms. And so, and follow me on social media. I'll usually retweet or put links out if I've written something new. So those are good ways to do that. And as far as reaching out to say hi, again, social media is a great way. Uh, I do check my direct messages. So don't hesitate to drop me a line and say hi if you're so inclined. And I uh, can certainly email me. My email's on there as well. So I'm pretty easy to get a hold of and I'm around. So don't hesitate to, to reach out. George Waters, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the Firm and Fast Golf podcast today. Many thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Not a problem. Continued success with the green section of the USGA with the book. And I can heartily recommend it's a fabulous, fabulous book with some great photography and some excellent wordsmith on behalf of Mr. Waters. Here's hoping to plenty of enjoyable golf for both of us for the remainder of 2022. Go easy. Absolutely, Shane. Thanks so much for having me. Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Please continue to like, subscribe and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.